Welcome to The Healing Catalyst. I'm your host, Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh, and I know that Ayurveda can transform your life. How? Because it transformed mine. And the best part is, it's easier than you think. Your body has exactly what it needs to heal itself. All you need to do to enhance its healing power is to start practicing healthy routines, which I can teach you. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple, ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. Let's get started. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 28. Well, hello, my beautiful friends. I hope you're all doing well as we're winding down the summer months. I also hope that you've all signed up for my special masterclass that I'm doing on Thursday, September 9th at 6 p.m. Central called the Energy Reset Masterclass. During the masterclass, I'll teach you how to reset your energy from the inside out. And you'll also learn how to do an Ayurvedic mind-body-spirit cleanse from the comfort of your own home, which is really critical at the change of seasons to support your health. You'll learn the basics of an Ayurvedic cleanse, and I'll share tips to get the most out of the experience. I promise you it's an experience that you don't want to miss. There's a link in the show notes, so make sure you sign up. Now let's jump into today's episode. My guest today is Dr. Ellen Vora. Dr. Vora was trained at Columbia University Medical School, and she's a board-certified psychiatrist, medical acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. Now she takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root rather than reflexively prescribing medication. And in addition to her private practice and speaking engagements, She's also recently written a book that will be coming out next year. As I said, Dr. Vora takes a whole person into consideration, and I find that her approach is so in line with Ayurveda. She focuses on everything from physical health and sleep, nutrition, digestion, thought patterns, relationships, and community. And she also looks at our connection with nature and creativity and the ways that we find meaning and purpose in life. In her conversation, Dr. Vora shared why she decided she needed to go into integrative psychiatry rather than staying in traditional allopathic psychiatry. We also talked about the impact of community on our mental and emotional health and why community is a main focus of her work with patients and her practice, in addition to food. We also discussed the impact of the pandemic on mental health and what she's seen change over the past year with respect to the issues facing her patients, as well as the alarming division that's happening in families and amongst friends that's causing fear, isolation, and disconnection among so many of us in this newest phase of life with the pandemic. For me personally, I left this conversation with Ellen inspired and uplifted, and I felt a great sense of connection to her. It was a beautiful heart-to-heart conversation with vulnerable moments and insightful observations. I know that this episode will be thought-provoking and very, very helpful to all of you. Well, hello, Ellen. It is so great to have you uh, on my podcast today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Hi, Avanti. It is so wonderful to be here today. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Are you kidding to have an expert like you on? It's just, this is going to be really fun. I, you know, I spent the morning uh, reading about you and reading more of your work. I've, you know, had a chance to look at it before, but took a deep dive uh, before this interview. And there's so many things that um, I want to get to. So we're going to dive in and (laughs) just start talking. Let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, So, you know, I would really love to start with, you know, 
what exactly is integrative psychiatry? And then the follow-up question is, why did you decide to go into integrative psychiatry versus, you know, allopathic psychiatry, which is what you trained in? So let's start there. Yeah. So I think if you ask like a hundred different so-called integrative psychiatrists, you probably get about a hundred different answers. So here's my interpretation <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, we all train in, in allopathic conventional psychiatry and, you know, each residency training program is a little bit different. I was you know, trained in New York City with a little bit more of an eye towards things like psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, if you train at programs on the West Coast, sometimes it's more of what's called a biologic approach where you're really thinking about the neuroscience and thinking about mental illness as a genetic chemical imbalance corrected with medication. And all of that felt somewhat useful to me, but it didn't feel like it got me the whole way there. I felt like I was encountering patients who are really suffering in their lives and the skills and the tools that I had been trained to offer were getting them only so far. And it felt unsatisfying. It felt incomplete to, from both of our perspectives, patient and physician. And sometimes it felt that I was even potentially doing harm. I saw people struggle with adverse effects from medications, withdrawal from getting off of medications, um, significant side effect burdens. So I felt in crisis about what I had been trained to do and I wanted a different way. And integrative psychiatry, I think its most classic definition is that you are taking sort of the best of East and West and integrating the two. You're taking modern conventional allopathic psychiatry and you're adding some perspective around herbs and supplements and a little bit of an Eastern tradition around thinking about the body as an interconnected web rather than just isolating the brain as if it were this separate entity not influenced by the physical body. I think of myself as also drawing upon disciplines like functional medicine, which really thinks about the body as or it thinks about treatment as root cause resolution rather than simply symptom suppression. And then I actually call myself a holistic psychiatrist. And to me, that covers the last couple bases, which is I'm thinking about the full portrait of my patient's lives, not just their brain chemistry. It's not just their genes. It is also the quality of their sleep. What are they eating? How is their digestion? How are their relationships? Do they have community? Do they have connection to nature or even bigger, loftier concepts like connection to meaning and purpose in life? So there's your long-winded answer of, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's beautiful. And pretty much, you know, everything that you're saying is Ayurveda. I mean, you're, you're practicing Ayurveda in through the lens of psychiatry. So I think it's beautiful and it aligns with so much of what I teach and what I do. Um, and also having a background in medicine, you know, going through Western medicine training and then coming into Eastern traditions, I share a lot of your story, you know, of feeling frustrated, of feeling like Western medicine didn't have all the answers and how do I help my patients get the answers that they need? Um, and I went back to what I grew up with, you know, Eastern healing traditions, Ayurveda, and I saw the potential there to find the answers that were missing in Western medicine. And, and again, like you said, to integrate those two it's so incredibly powerful. And, you know, I honestly think that you are like on the cutting edge as far as psychiatry goes, because from my perspective, and I think I have, you know, I have personal experience with family members who have actually gone to integrative psychiatrists here in Chicago. And the transformation is just profound when you take a look at psychiatric issues, uh, emotional health, mental health with this lens. It's, it's phenomenal to, to talk about. So I'm, I'm excited to ask you more questions, but, you know, what would you say is, you know, you said that there, if you ask a hundred different integrative docs, you know, what integrative medicine is, you'll get a hundred different answers. Well, for you, what would you say? And I know you touched on this, but what are really sort of the components of health for you from your perspective and even mental health, emotional health, whichever way you want to go, but what are the basic components from your perspective? Yeah. So I think the basic determinants of health, there are a lot of different ways I want to approach this question, but let me sort of think out loud a little bit yeah. about it. 
I do. It's a little bit falling. It, it came into vogue and now it's sort of falling out of fashion, but I do still hold pretty closely to the idea that what we feed ourselves is a very primary determinant. About It feels like about five or six years ago, that felt like this revolution that was afoot where we started to recognize, oh, hey, what do you know? What we eat impacts our physical and mental health. The fact that that had to be a revolution is crazy. <laughs> and Ayurvedic practitioners, Chinese medicine practitioners, you know, naturopaths have been saying this for as long as history, but, you know, it, it had to feel revolutionary within allopathic medicine. Now we have an interesting debate happening around diet culture and all of the sort of, there's, there's so much bias and injustice and systemic racism. And there's a lot of issues and concepts that come up around how we're talking about food and how we feed ourselves. So it's, we're in a different space with that now. But I still, I always want to make it accessible and approachable and realistic and coming from a place of radical self-love and not self-negation, um, not self-punishment. But I do still believe that the compass of trying to eat real food and avoid fake food um, is central to feeling well. And, you know, there's the, there's the list of like sunshine matters, fresh air matters, movement matters, laughter matters, connection to nature matters. but probably like sleep and digestive health and inflammation. But the other one that I'm really focusing on and, and, and centering in my practice these days is community. And that's the one that I think we were already really on a bad path, you know, as into 2019. And then with the pandemic, it's just been so accelerated where we feel so isolated and alienated and disconnected everything from social distancing to the increasing polarization politically where, you know, people are losing friendships where we're just so hair trigger um, reactive. And basically at every juncture, we're getting more and more disconnected from each other rather than building connection, bridges, empathy, and understanding. So to me, what we eat in our community are pretty central. Amazing. So I'm going to actually go to the community piece because we talk a lot about food on this podcast. And I absolutely, I agree with everything you said, but let's talk about community because I think that that is really important. And again, like you said, given the time that we're in right now, you know, um, not post pandemic with pandemic living with it, you know, out of quarantine, I don't even know how to describe it or define it, but I think that, you know, Again, like you said, through the past year with the lack of community that people have felt because of being quarantined and being isolated and now going back into the world, I think that there's a whole nother set of things happening. What are you seeing in your office with your patients or what's coming up for um, you know, the, the, the people that you're helping as far as this transition time that we're going through right now? Yeah. And even, you know, as recently as two weeks ago, it felt like what we were talking about was transition back to like being able to connect with each other, to be in person in our jobs and in schools. And, and even just in the last couple of weeks with the Delta variant, it's really been called into question. What, what are we heading toward right now? It's unclear, but what I'm seeing is, um, I mean, on a level that I think I'm not saying anything profound or new, like I'm seeing anxiety around, um, fear and safety concerns. And, um, this question of like, I think we're being asked to be brilliant epidemiologic statisticians and few among us are right. But basically how do we adjust our priors constantly? How do we assess for trade-offs? Because it, it's not all or nothing. We actually have to balance mental health and earning a living with risk avoidance. And there's no perfect balance or answer when it comes to our own safety and the safety of our families, but also with regard to our communities. So it's really tricky. But what concerns me more than the, the thing that's really on my mind is the division that you're seeing. And when I see people that are, are finding big chasms in their families and their friend circles, generally around decisions around immunization, what you see is two people that can't understand each other's perspective and um, both feel that the other person is deluded. You know? And I think that um, right now there's this feeling of, um, I, I think what I see in my friend circle often and among some of my patients is when they're around someone who's made a different choice. The first 
thing that we hide behind is like to call that an issue of safety. But then what, what's really below that is, is almost like a moral or religious difference. And I think that this is taken on a quality of religion and um, where sort of scientism is the religion in question. And I think that in the same way of religious warfare of the past, like we've gotten really into a stuck place where it's a matter of faith and we can't see eye to eye. So we, we take different faiths. And, and I think that makes it really hard to uh, arrive at mutual understanding. And so I'm just seeing so much loss of connection and so much judgment and anger and fear and resentment. And it just feels like it feels a little bit hopeless right now. Yeah. So it sounds like it's actually quite different in, in some ways than what we were seeing during the beginning stages of the, of the pandemic. You know, that's sort of more, and I'm seeing the same thing. So I'm completely agreeing with you is that in the first stages, it was sort of like the anxiety and the panic that was feeding into any, you know, mental health issues that anyone had already and just amplifying those. Right. Um, but what you, what we're talking about, what you're you know, sort of highlighting is, is a little different. It's, it's this fear factor. It's this judgment. It's these, you know, fundamental beliefs that are pulling people apart rather than the social isolation or being afraid of the, the virus, right? It's almost like we're battling each other, right? That's what I'm starting to feel like too, is that it's, you know, yeah, there's this virus, but now people are, are, are getting at each other. And that is hugely problematic. And that's just like a whole nother, you know, beast in a way to deal yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. You said it. Yeah. Yeah. What I've seen a lot is, you know, patients in my practice might be a young, healthy person, fully vaccinated. Um, and they're interacting with somebody and they're outdoors, they're socially distanced, they're wearing a mask. And that then when they find out that the person is not vaccinated, they feel like, well, you just threatened my life. And I think if we're really looking at risk mitigation, I think to be fully vaccinated, to be outside, to be socially distanced, to be wearing a mask, like mutually both people wearing a mask, I think the real risk in that situation is, is approaching zero. And there's, so we hide behind that and we kind of say it's, it's, you know, that's a selfish, irresponsible choice because it's putting me in danger. But I think what's really underneath that is like, we almost want a reason to fight with each other. We want a reason to hate mm -hmm. each other, to, to say you're bad, I'm good. And, um, and we, we sort of call it risk, but I think risk is not actually what's happening there. Sometimes real risk is what's happening. But the, the inconvenient and really uncomfortable truth is that a lot of the risk that exists right now is not even completely avoidable. You can be doing everything, quote unquote, right and not 100% avoid the risk. And so we look to blame. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just tough. I think you're exactly right. The virus is no longer what we're battling most of all. It's each other right now. Yeah. So it's such an interesting dilemma as healthcare professionals of, you know, how do we advise, you know, patients and, and what do we do with that? Uh, well, we have someone sitting across from us saying, you know, these things and, and this is really what's happening for them. It's, it's a whole nother ball of wax. Like I was saying, you know, what are some of the other um, emotional sort of health issues that you've really seen come to the forefront in the past year and a half, would you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of different things. And I think even related to that and tying back to what we talked about a moment ago, Right now, with this uptick in resentment and judgment, I think you can never go wrong leaning into empathy and understanding. And I think that has been the salve, if anything, has worked for my patients. It's to really explore that concept of how do you enhance empathy and understanding of someone with a different perspective. What I've been seeing has really evolved over the last year and a half. Initially, I had so many patients coming into this who suffer from daily anxiety. And as soon as the pandemic hit, I was like, oh boy, hold the phones. I'm going to get a lot of people reaching out and saying that they're reaching a new peak of anxiety. Mm -hmm. What I saw instead was in social media in sort of followers and all of that, I saw a massive uptick in anxiety. 
what I saw amongst my patients was something a little bit different. I think it's a little bit related to the fact that they've drunk the Kool-Aid of how I frame making meaning of situations, but I had a lot of patients say, huh, this explains that feeling of impending doom that I've been feeling for the last several months. And now I feel like I can make sense of it. And it kind of brought them to some place of resolution. So not to say that the world wasn't stressful and scary and existentially uncertain, um, that none of my patients were immune from that, but they did feel almost like their anxiety was put into a context that made, made it make sense suddenly, um, rather than just anxiety out of proportion to their lives. And then over the course of the year and a half, I've seen an interesting phenomenon between people that are sort of more on the introverted end of the spectrum and more at the extroverted end of the spectrum. And the introverts have arrived at this new state of, I like this, you know, they, they have not missed the small talk and the networking events and the happy hours, raising my hand right here, (laughs) the awkward elevator rides. Um, but they also, then I have the extroverts who have just been deflated by this experience. They rely on connection with others to buoy their energy. And I think there are pandemic learnings that come out of this as we reapproach some version of normal with work. I think it used to be, we just took for granted. That's what work is, is you have to live a little bit in a mismatch with your constitution. I think more people now are making conscious choices around, I want my work to be in alignment with my constitution. I want to have a day-to-day life that feels right to my nervous system. Easier said than done. Um, But I think we at least have some awareness of what we like, what we prefer, what we need. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a a great point is that, you know, I've been having this conversation with a lot of people in my life personally, you know, my husband, my children who are both college aged, but, you know, and as well as patients and students is that, you know, making these decisions about what you want to keep and what you want to get rid of, you know, it was easier to do when you're at home and you can make those choices. But now as you go back into the world, it's going to take some reflection and some thought and some diligence on your part to keep going with those decisions that you've maybe started to put into place of, you know, who you're going to hang out with, how much social interaction do you want? You know, um, what things are important for you to be doing on a daily basis to manage your health, manage your emotional health, because a lot of us had a lot of extra time uh, that, you know, wasn't spent commuting or going to events or whatever, where we could actually start to do some small practices, you know? So um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting place to be, but it's one of so much potential and so much opportunity, um, which I think is, you know, one of my invitations to everyone who's listening is to, you know, start to turn around this sort of fear and anxiety that you're feeling and instead start to try to look at it as an opportunity to change how you are living and how you're doing things. Right. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't add two other evolutions of sort of psycho-emotional health that I've been seeing. And and one of course is grief and um, people have had firsthand experiences with grief. Um, Sometimes it's directly related to COVID. Sometimes it's an indirectly complicated grief because of the pandemic, whether it's someone wasn't able to fly across the country to be near somebody who was in a state of ailing health, um, you know, wasn't allowed to be in the hospital with somebody who was more abundant. And so we just, there's so much complex grief going on right now. And I think a lot of people are also tapped into the collective grief, whether mm. they've lost somebody close to them or not. They're just tapped into the fact that this has been a collective trauma and a massive amount of grief. And a lot of us feel that on a visceral level. And the other thing that we're seeing is languishing. You see at the beginning, we were running on fumes. There was so much adrenaline and fear that it kind of kept us activated. And that of course is a sprint, not a marathon. And we, we, the pandemic has become a marathon. So um, people ran out of those energy reserves and are now just sort of like going through their lives, kind of like through this muddy windshield of languishing energy. And, um, and I think that part of the the call to action there is to figure out how we can reconnect to engagement, to have flow state and connect to creativity and meaning again in our work lives and our personal lives. Right. And so what, what's coming up for me is that the, the things that you're describing are actually variations of what you could call anxiety and depression, right? If you were mm-hmm. to clinically just see somebody, you say, oh, well, that person who's languishing, who's feeling this sort of 
you know, sort of just being just depleted from the past year um, could could present as someone who was actually depressed. And so that actually goes into my next question, which is from an integrative or a holistic perspective, when you're looking at something like, let's start with anxiety. You know, I know that people listening will want to know about anxiety and depression and, you know, the other specialty that you are an expert in is, is, uh, sleep. So we'll talk about all three, but let's start with anxiety from your perspective. What are some of the, um, causes of, of anxiety, uh, that we can sort of take control of? Because I think one of the things that I'm trying to equip people with is things that they have in their control because right now everything outside of us feels so out of control. Even for us in the healthcare professions, we have no clue like what the next thing is going to be. Are they going to be masks? Are they not going to be masks? Like, is there a booster? Is there not a booster? I mean, there's all these questions that we have. Um, and so I can imagine that most people who aren't even in the medical profession are feeling completely out of control and sort of feeling like I have no control over anything. So what are some things that they can start to do? And I know that's sort of the point of integrative approaches, but for anxiety. So what, what are some things that you really think could help people? Yeah. So when I think about anxiety, typically the way we're thinking about it is like, well, does somebody have clinical anxiety? Do they warrant a diagnosis? And if so, what's the classification? Is it generalized anxiety <laughs> or panic disorder with agoraphobia? You know, and yep. I actually don't find that those, that that menu of options is all that useful in, in guiding management in my practice, at least. Um, to me, anxiety diagnoses are not one zero. Like, do you qualify for clinical anxiety or not? And therefore don't do anything. Right. Um, I think that the questions are not that useful. I think that the more useful question is, so if you're feeling like, do I have anxiety? If you're asking that question in my book, you have some level of meaningful anxiety. Um, it's your subjective experience that I'm valuing above all else. And then within that, I think of it as there are these, this false moods, false anxiety, avoidable anxiety that relates to physiologic states of imbalance. And that's the stuff that's the low hanging fruit and the easy wins. And it's actionable. We can chop that away by making all kinds of diet and lifestyle strategies, which I'll go into in a second. And then we also have this true anxiety, which is not false. It's, it's purposeful anxiety. It's our body sensing something is not right here in my personal life, in the world around me. And I have to take steps accordingly. I have to fight to make this right, make some changes. And that's not something you'd want to medicate away, even if you could, which we can't. Um, that is something to get still and slow down and listen to and heed. And so when it comes to the false anxieties, I think of that as often related to things like blood sugar swings. So many of us in the West are really dysglycemic. We have a diet based on refined carbohydrates and coffee drinks that are secretly milkshakes and rosé all day. And we're just on this blood sugar roller coaster where it spikes and it crashes. When it crashes, the design of the body, as you know, is to have a stress response. Mm -hmm. That's what cues the liver to break down our storage of starch. And it saves the day. We get blood sugar again, but we have this five alarm fire in the body that leaves us feeling anxious. Caffeine is another one. This is nobody's favorite conversation, I, but yep. it's worth bringing up. Is that Absolutely. Some sensitive to caffeine and it can induce a stress response in the body that can feel a lot like anxiety. Um, there's not an overnight fix to that because if you're habituated to a certain amount of caffeine, even if it's making you anxious, you can't just go cold Turkey and feel better. You'll feel worse in a different way then. So you have to gradually taper off very gradually. I think of gut health as being central to anxiety with so many aspects of modern life, decimating the diverse ecosystem of our gut flora. A lot of us are missing certain strains of bacteria that help us manufacture certain neurotransmitters like GABA, like serotonin, that help us feel calm and relaxed in our lives. So we need to heal the gut and replete those populations of bacteria. And inflammation is a big one. We're many of us very inflamed. That's really the modern disease is that we're chronically inflamed. And there's a lot that goes into that, but there are some fixes from incorporating anti-inflammatory foods like turmeric, especially in a synergistic combination with black pepper, um, can be more bioavailable and very helpful in terms of soothing inflammation in the body. Um, and then 
avoiding or reducing the inflammatory foods that are so common in our diets. Some of the ones that are more obvious are the ones you get a lot of airtime, like gluten and dairy. Everyone has their opinion on those, but there's some that fly under the radar, like uh, industrially processed vegetable oils can also be very inflammatory. So that's just a taste of some of the false moods that I look at when somebody presents with anxiety. I'm thinking, why, in what way is their physical body out of balance? And how can we bring that back into a state of balance quickly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, to 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 break it down in those sort of three areas of, you know, your experience. And I love that you really, you know, um, are emphasizing that because I think that's important to click into is that your experience as a human being matters. You know, it's not okay to go to a healthcare provider and for them to say, well, you don't fit the diagnosis. You know, it's your experience of what's going on And that is real and very valid. And then I think that, you know, adding this perspective that there's also these other pieces that, you know, can be the false anxiety and the, um, the, the biological anxiety, those are all pieces of the puzzle and they're all important. But I think that the, the subjective experience of somebody many times gets discounted, not only by other healthcare providers, but also by by ourselves, but from within, we discount our subjective experience, which is, I think, extremely damaging. Um, And it takes us away from really tapping into that wisdom that we have within the intuition that, you know, we all are born with, but seem to lose as we get older. Um, So I think it's really important. I think you make such a profound point. And this is not something I think I've talked about in any kind of podcast format before, but I think this is so vital. And two thoughts come to mind about this. And one is the way our world kind of conditions us to lose connection to our internal environment, even seemingly well-meaning things like all of the ways we can survey these days, the quality of our sleep, you know, the examined life, the lab testing. We're basically looking to an objective instrument outside of us to tell us how we feel. And and it's, it's sometimes very useful data, but sometimes you can know how well you slept based on how you feel when you woke up. And, um, and I think that it just all systematically trains us to not trust our internal experience. And there's just something also in healthcare providers, like we've both been through the training and buried embedded within that, I think is a way that we're initiated into Um, what it is to be a healthcare provider, where you learn how to talk and you learn how to respond to patients in a way that I think is subtly dismissive, patronizing, misogynistic. And I feel like I had to really unlearn that to be a human practitioner in front of my patients. Like I, I feel like take chronic Lyme, for example, I feel like there was a way, you know, as when you're in training and you want to be like the attending and you want to walk the walk and talk the talk and have the cool, rigorous academic attitude. If a patient comes forth and they're like, I, I have brain fog and anxiety, and I feel this weird burning sensation when I breathe. And I think it's the Lyme disease that I got 12 years ago. A practitioner learns to ever so subtly roll their eyes at that and to not believe it and to be like, okay, diagnosis, anxiety, you know, and sort of like side-eyed it. And I've really discarded that attitude. And instead I accept as fact what my patients say. Like, and I, I let my priors and my theories adjust in response to what someone's subjectively reporting rather than the other way, rather than, well, I'd never read about that in a textbook and I've never seen an academic paper to say that your breathing should hurt. So what you're saying is not valid. That's wrong. And they're valid. What they're saying is valid and our incomplete and imperfect establishment of what is thus far known is what's not necessarily valid. Yeah, I, I agree you know, a hundred thousand percent with everything you've said, everything that you said, I've thought before, and I had to unlearn as well, because we are in this, it's almost like hazing in a way that like you're taught to think this way and be this way. And you, you pick up the language and the, the gestures and all of that stuff. And you, you do have to unlearn it. And what just came to me when you were saying that it's like medical training, Western medical training in this country, almost makes you as a physician stop trusting yourself 
as a physician, right? So it's not only the patients that have grown up, you know, learning to discount what they feel and what they think, but then it's even more emphasized for us going through training that, nope, your intuition, put it aside because this is what the labs say. This is what the images say. This is what the books say, the research on and on and on and on. And so that gut feeling you have when you see a patient gets thrown out the window. What, what, what you're saying, it's probably doesn't come through on the audio, but like it has me tearing up because yeah, yeah you just click the thing into place for me. It's, it's exactly right. And not only do you, you get indoctrinated into not trusting your intuition, but there's even shame around having a connection to your intuition. Like that's witchcraft and sorcery. You know, and I've learned over the years, it's actually a very useful compass in the work that I do. It's not the only compass that guides me. I also am interested in objective tools of measurement, but I think that we can have a both and approach and balance all of these inputs. So at this point, I just own it and I sort of self-deprecating, self-jokingly call myself a witch because <laughs> make no mistake, I'm going to bring my intuition into treatments. And I, I've found it actually very infrequently leads me astray. Yeah. And I, and I find that more and more people want to learn from me and, 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 you know, come to me because of that same reason. You know, I, I spent so many years after making a decision to leave Western medicine and go into Ayurveda feeling a lot of shame and feeling like, oh my God, what did I just do? And sort of letting the stories from other people get into my head. And I have since then just decided that I don't have time to worry about all of that, you know, um, that the impact that I'm having on patients and on people in general who are finding me and learning to tap back into their own wisdom that is the most important thing. And so like you, I embrace it. You know, I'm like, yep, you think I'm a quack? Think I'm a quack. I'm not. And I don't actually even think of myself as a healer. That's coming from another source, right? I always look at myself as a guide. I just have a ton of information, tons of years, like many, many years of study, <laughs> many more years than I, you know, <laughs> probably should have, or, you know, could you know, look back on it. And I'm like, Oh my God, how many years did I was in school? But, you know, I've, I've accumulated a ton of knowledge. And so it's, I feel that it's my responsibility to share it um, and to help integrate it for people. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that I, I've taken my own advice, I guess, of what I'm teaching, which is trying to help people reconnect with their inner wisdom. I too then need to do that in my profession. Um, not just as, you know, a person walking down the street and minding her own business and her own life, but as a physician, as an Ayurvedic practitioner, I have to also walk that walk. So um, it's so great to meet you and be on that same path with you. <laughs> I, I agree. And I want to add to what you're saying. Like I look at so many of my patients are miserable in their careers. They're miserable in their work life. They feel misaligned with what they're doing. They feel like they're not making a tangible contribution. And I think what you're describing when you kind of discard the shame and you just follow like, here is where I feel guided is to Ayurveda. Um, this is really at the heart of how we can rehabilitate our relationship to vocation. We have, many of us come of age in this idea of well, what should we do? What is most prestigious or what is most lucrative and what would be coveted by others? And that's what you should do. Like I went to med school because that was the best thing I could do. It was, you know, it, looking back, maybe I wouldn't change anything now, but for a long time, it was like, that was maybe a mistake. <laughs> so right. I, and I think that instead, what we need to do is recognize like uniquely, what is my unique perspective? What is my unique gift? And what's the contribution I'm here to make? And sometimes you're here to be Beyonce and sometimes you're here to be an Ayurvedic practitioner and sometimes you're here to do something else entirely. And we need to stop grading it on a scale and think some are better than others. We need to really think about it as like, well, who are you? What lights you up? Because I promise that when we're doing what lights us up, the whole world goes around more smoothly. And when we're doing something ostensibly prestigious, that's out of alignment with our purpose, um, that is not an enviable life at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, I, I a hundred percent agree with everything you said. It's, 
it's definitely my philosophy in life and and one that I'm really trying to impart on my kids who are in their 20s, you know, um, really trying to help them see that it's it's more than just the prestige. It's about the calling, about what what your heart is calling for also, and not just what your brain is telling you that you should be doing. It's a combination of those. Um, yeah, I, I want to continue on this, but I know there's so many other topics we have to talk yeah. about. And so I'm going to I'm going to switch topics here. And I wanted to talk to you about um, depression also, because I know a lot of people who are listening are are struggling with that. And so how do you look at depression from an integrative perspective? And I also want to ask you about ketamine and your thoughts on that. I was going to go there anyway. Oh, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> we're thinking on the right. We're on the same wavelength here. Yeah. So, I mean, depression is a tricky pickle and I really think about it as it runs the gamut. Sometimes it's just an intolerance to gluten in the diet. Like I've had patients where, you know, we could try any medication, you could do any fancy intervention and just going gluten-free ends up being what takes them from being chronically pitted out, empty and sad feeling to well, and able to feel happy and thriving in their life. Sometimes it's not gluten. Um, sometimes it is inflammation. We actually have a pretty increasingly robust evidence basis for the fact that, um, cytokine levels course may correlate with levels of depression. We can see now how the glymphatic system, you're basically cytokine markers of inflammation are directly impacting our central nervous system. So it knows when we're inflamed and it has a reaction to that. And sometimes the sick response is really synonymous with what we're calling depression, which is malaise. And you don't want to socialize and you want to stay at home under the covers. And that's an adaptive reaction to acute inflammation on the proverbial savanna of evolution. It's a maladaptation to the chronic inflammatory states that we live in in modern life, where we're just chronically inflamed and therefore chronically in a sick response, which looks like chronic low-grade depression. I think of it as also very often micronutrient deficiencies. We've really gotten away from how do we nourish ourselves with all of the online tribal warfare on how to feed ourselves and what's the environmental choice and what's the ethical choice and what's the cool choice. And, you know, we, it, people have gotten into these labels of these silos, but sometimes we've been disconnected from what's a balanced plate and what does our body uniquely need in any given moment, any given phase of the cycle or season of the year. And we have changing needs and we have big needs. I think of nutrition as a scavenger hunt and under the best of circumstances with a nutrient dense diet, it's actually hard to check all of those boxes. But when we're eating a lot of processed food, um, we're actually just missing opportunities to nourish ourselves. So a lot of us are walking around B12 deficient or folate deficient or zinc deficient, and we don't feel well as a result. Depression also has a huge kind of true mood component. And when we are disconnected from nature, community, meaning, and purpose, it's really hard to feel well, no matter how perfectly well-nourished or uninflamed you are. And sometimes here's the tricky thing, is to become perfectly well-nourished and uninflamed, that sometimes takes us out of social interaction because it's hard to do that and be normal and have a social life. And so it's a, it's a really tricky puzzle. Um, psychedelics, I find, um, can kind of address the false and the true aspects of depression at the same time. So ketamine you mentioned, which is kind of our legal psychedelic right now, has a beautiful growing body of evidence to support its use in depression and suicidality. Um, it seems to work in a number of different ways. It increases the release of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Here's the like neuroscience gobbledygook, and then I'll explain what I mean. But basically it, it enhances neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. The translation is we can grow and change and adapt. And when we are stuck in entrenched patterns of thinking, melancholic patterns of thinking, obsessive ruminations, we it's like it shakes up the snow globe to use Michael Pollan's analogy. And, and then um, we can, a new coat of snow can fall with different grooves dug in. And so we don't have to be stuck in the same patterns. It's also anti-inflammatory. It's also active at a particular serotonin. Um, like the classic psychedelics are active at the 5-HT2A receptor in the brain. So they do enhance serotonergic function, but in a way that doesn't cause numbing, doesn't cause withdrawal, seems to have an enduring effect. Um, but then I think the part that's most interesting about how psychedelics help with depression is the so-called um, 
spiritual, I think it's called the spiritual experience hypothesis. So basically the more peak spiritual experience you have in the psychedelic ceremony, that is proportional to the clinical effect to the outcome. And so the more you have a state of awe and connection with something loving or benevolent or divine, um, the more you feel that and experience that, the less depressed you'll be afterward. And that's the sustained effect. And this other dimension of how psychedelics work, which is the way they quiet a particular part of the brain called the default mode network, which is very overlapping with parts of the brain we know are, are pivotal to states like depression, like in the posterior cingulate gyrus. And so basically what we see is that that part of our brain where we future trip and dwell on the past and think of ourselves as separate from others, that goes quiet for the duration of a psychedelic ceremony. And think of the implications of that. Basically, we have an expanded sense of our connection to others. The limited definition of ourselves and the border of who are we um, dissolves temporarily. So you can see yourself as more part of an interconnection and you can be fully present and not always consumed with the future and the past. Wow. That is a beautiful explanation. Thank you for that, because it's a question I get um, from a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I'm going to reveal something that I've never revealed is I've actually um, done ketamine treatments myself for depression that I have, you know, dealt with for many, many years. Um, I, you know, obviously being in the integrative world, I have a lot of friends who are in integrative psychiatry and have been reading the data and the research and sending it to me. Um, and so I actually have done ketamine treatments and every single thing that you just described is what I experienced. Mm. Um, so thank you for putting it into words. And maybe we'll have to do another episode where we could talk more about the experience of ketamine because I think it would be really helpful to a lot of people. Um, and it's hard for me to, you know, explain it myself, my own experience. So it might be something that I could talk with you about um, and see if it could help a lot of people understand what psychedelics are and um, how they can be used medicinally um, when done with the proper, you know, observation and, and, and in a controlled way, um, can really be life-changing. Um, cause I would say that doing the treatment has been quite profound for me. Um, I think my personality is such that I can push through everything. Um, but this, what ketamine has done for me is that it has allowed me to relax into myself and still accomplish all of these things that I want to accomplish. So it's been profound for me. So, but thank you for that description. I, I love hearing. I'm so glad that you've had access to this treatment and it's been helpful. And in my patient panel, I've seen it to be the most profound and transformational agent for change. And I think there is, I feel remiss if I didn't bring up the obligatory caveats, which mm -hmm. are that it Please. is not safe for everyone in all settings. It's, you know, it has indications, it has contraindications. Um, and I also think that even if it's right for someone, sometimes we're tempted to think about it as like, I'm hearing all this buzz about psychedelics. So it's a silver bullet. It's one and done. It's going to fix my depression. And it's not quite like that. I think, yes, it will, but it might take a while and it's work. Um, it just enables that work and it's beautiful work. It can be challenging. Um, can really, it's dropped me to my knees on a number of occasions, this mm -hmm. work, yeah. but I would never trade it. It's um, it connects you to a, a depth of connection to source and creativity and to your humanity and your connection with others and gratitude and awe. And it's really good work, but it's hard. And it's not necessarily, you're not solving the problem necessarily in one ceremony. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also, you know, uh, there's a time for it. You have to be at, you have to be ready to do that kind of work to have that experience, that experience of awe that you were talking about, which is so transformative, you're not going to go to that place unless you're ready to go to that place. Because I know that for me, when I first did this treatment, I was not ready. I'm such a control freak. I was like, oh my gosh. And I, you know, I had read all the studies. And so I knew, I know exactly how it works. And I think my brain was just too overactive. And so I was like, okay, nothing happened, <laughs> you know, and I, I really had to, you know, sort of relax into it and allow, um, the process to unfold and be ready 
to do that work, to do that very deep work. I've been doing that work my whole life, but to really dive in and do that kind of deep work, I had to say, okay, I'm going to, it's going to be messy. It's going to suck. I'm going to be on my knees, but I'm going to do it. And that's when it changed and and the experience changed and the treatment was profound for me. So yeah. Yeah. It, thank it, you. it viscerally teaches the lesson of surrender. Oh. You, know, you surrender in a very microcosmic way in a psychedelic ceremony. And I think it also gives us practice for a more macrocosmic act of surrender in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think you take that lesson and if you, if you want to, and I really have, uh, I think because it was such a profound experience for me, I really have taken that lesson and I've really been applying it in small ways every day, um, in different situations. And I have felt uh, this feeling of relaxation into myself of sort of like coming home to myself in the past few years that I have not felt in my life. So, um, it's, it's been transformative for me. Um, okay. I know that we're really over time, but I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions because okay. I hope that's okay with you. Okay. With um, <laughs> um, as far as, you know, you talked about community as being one of the things that really supports people. And I know that you've written a little bit about ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences and that effect on health. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and like get back to this trauma, collective trauma sort of mm. impact? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, I mean, this world, this life, it's, it's too hard, you know, it's sometimes just too much and what people go through, what people experience, it's, it's overwhelming. And I think that there's Ultimately, my hope is that we can actually change how much people endure trauma, you know, that comes down to the systemic racism of our institutions and that comes down to supporting parents so that they can show up as um, good enough parents for their children. And, you know, I don't really blame parents for failing at that. I really blame the, the system we're in and, and how, you know, just showing up day to day, it's against all odds. It's just we're fighting such an uphill battle. Um, but I think that given a certain amount of it is unavoidable, I do think culturally we need a couple, um, we need to think differently about it. One is we, we are an emotion phobic culture and we need to unlearn that fast. I think mm-hmm. Brene Brown has required reading for everybody, but basically we need to embrace our vulnerability. We need to allow ourselves to feel our feelings, give ourselves permission to feel our feelings. Crying, for example, is something that when we start to cry, we inevitably apologize. We say, I'm sorry. And we suck it back in and try to make it as small as possible. But crying this quintessentially human act that is such the wisdom of the body, giving us a release and decreasing our stress response is something we should dive into and lean into. And and rather than apologize, own it, normalize it, um, be proud of it and, and let it be as big as possible. And I think there's also something around trauma treatment, which is that we have this idea intellectually that um, if we've experienced a trauma, what we need to do is verbally rehash it and, and process it in that way. Sometimes that can be helpful. Sometimes that can be re-traumatizing. So we want to approach it with intention and care. And I tend to believe that these more somatic-based therapies, less verbal um, are what are more fundamentally transformative for trauma. So that's things like thematic experiencing therapy and something called EMDR or eye movement desensitization reprogramming. And I also find something called DNRS is very helpful, which I think stands for dynamic neural retraining system, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so um, they, these are the treatments that I find fundamentally shift when, when someone's experienced a capital T trauma or a series of lowercase t traumas throughout childhood or really at any point in their life, the limbic system kind of gets stuck in this on position, like the gas pedal is glued to the floor. And that's a very uncomfortable way to go through life. And so the way we actually put the brakes on that and change the pattern in the limbic system is these somatic-based nonverbal approaches that really just change where our nervous system hangs out and it requires a certain amount of reprogramming and often releasing it from this, the body. That's mm-hmm. the entry point more than our intellectualization of it. Right. And so, you know, this, this idea of, um, you know, it being trapped within us 
you know, the, the emotions, I think that's also is so um, true for what we've all gone through, you know, this past year. And so if you could give one piece of advice to the listeners of something that they can do that's within their control um, to really help them through this transition period, what would you say it would be? And it doesn't have to be one. <laughs> I, I think that this is a little bit controversial, but this has been what has made sense for me is that you do the precautions, you take the regular steps, you do what you can to mitigate risk, to avoid exposure where you can, but don't entirely focus on that. There is also a lot to be said for what's called terrain theory, which unfortunately has almost become a a dog whistle for like COVID denial. And that's not really how I see it. I see it as this is where we can feel empowered that we're doing everything we can to strengthen our own immune system. And I'm all for precautions and mitigating risk and avoiding exposure and not into denying what we're up against. But at the same time, there's a lot we can do. And that's not what's been emphasized in the public health messaging. So prioritizing rest, nutrition, sunshine, and healthy vitamin D levels, healthy vitamin C and zinc levels, um, and just making sure that we're actually correcting that chronic fear state that we're in, which suppresses our immune response. It's easier said than done to not be in a chronic fear state in a pandemic, but wherever you can discharge excess adrenaline, um, whether it's shaking or dancing or journaling or singing or cuddling, but some way of discharging excess stress hormones and telling the nervous system, the threat has passed, I am safe and bringing the nervous system back into a relaxation response, even if it's just for a minute or two per day. Amazing. That's Amazing advice. And I agree wholeheartedly with you. Um, I'm going to go one more minute over and I'm going to ask you just a couple quick uh, speed round questions so people can get to know you in a different way. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Complete this sentence. Wellness is. Wellness is a fulfilling life. What's one myth about mental health that we need to change? That mental health is a genetic destiny that's out of our control while genetics play a role and they may create a vulnerability, environment is the more substantial determinant and that's the part we can control. So there's a lot we can do and ways we can feel empowered to impact our mental health. What is something that people often get wrong about you? I'm going to go raw and (laughs) real on this one. I think I look less intelligent, sweeter, and more vegetarian than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're a girl after my own heart. I love this. (laughs) Great answer. Um, What's something that most people don't know about you? That I have accepted Beyonce as my one true God in this world. Amazing. She's amazing. I love that you referenced her earlier too. That was great. What's one thing that you're really excited about right now? Um, The implications for psychedelic treatment and mental health. I agree. What's one thing that you're deeply grateful about right now? So many things. I'm grateful for my partner and my daughter and my family, my friends, and grateful to be um, just immersed in nature in this moment. Hmm. What book is on your nightstand right now? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I am in the middle of, well, I'm actually just started book six of Harry Potter with my daughter. <laughs> and so that is physically on my nightstand. And um, what am I reading? Am I, I'm just finishing Nicola Perez's book called How to Do the Work. Amazing. What is a song that you're listening to on repeat right now? I love that question. Um, so, so, so many songs, but I love this cover of Yellow Brick Road by an artist named Yola. And I love um, the album Black is King by Beyonce. And I particularly love the song called Spirit on that. Amazing. So if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? To catalyze healing, slow down and listen to what comes up from within you. Beautiful. Ellen, thank you so much for being on my podcast. It has been just amazing to talk to you. I feel so connected to you in so many ways. So thank you for that. Uh, Avanti, thank you so much for having me. It's nice to know a kindred spirit. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We will do this again for sure.
If you love this podcast, and I so hope you did, please subscribe. That way, you'll get real-time updates anytime I post a new episode. And if you're feeling really inspired, please leave a review so that others can find this podcast more easily. If you want to learn more, visit me on the interwebs at avantikumarsingh.com, and you can subscribe to my newsletter, where I send exclusive invites to my events, special announcements, and give you more self-healing tools and tips. And if you want to hang out even more with me, I spend most of my time on Instagram. You can find me at Avanti Kumar Singh, and we can connect more there. Until next time, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing, because healing starts within.